Lord God Jesus Christ, we thank you for the privilege to be here together. We thank you for the day that you have made. We thank you that you give yourself to us to be known. And we pray that would be transformed and transfigured by this knowledge. In your son's name, amen. I'm actually going to do it um, in a little bit more formal way than Mark did it last time. I, I've actually scripted my lecture, um, and uh, I think I'm a little better at that than at ad-libbing my, uh, my lectures. So without further ado, the, the title of my talk is um, The Law, the Gospel, and the Christian Life, and I hope you all have a copy of the handout. I'll direct you to the handout uh, and some of the quotations there when, I, uh, when we come to them in the, in the lecture itself. The question to which we want to give our attention tonight is that of the law, the gospel, and their role in the Christian life. The more specific question to which my lecture will build up is whether the law has a place in Christian life, and if so, what is this place? To put the question in more technical terms, it boils down to the following. Is there a third use of the law that applies to Christians alone? a pedagogical use, whereby the law instructs us what it means to be a Christian. In response to this question, the thesis I wish to advance, stated in a preliminary way, is that while there is certainly both room and a need for moral deliberation, the Christian life cannot be reduced to a use of the law. This thesis can be broken down further into two assertions, one quite unproblematic and another which calls for a longer argument. The Christian life cannot be reduced to a use of the law because, first, the law is not the motor of the Christian life. The law does not motivate, or rather motivates in all the wrong ways. And second, the law falls short of capturing and conveying the shape and personal character of the Christian life. Um, and that is New Testament exhortations notwithstanding, and I'll get to those um, towards the end of this lecture. Now, I've been asked to speak to this issue of the law and gospel as a Lutheran theologian. My argument, therefore, will build off close engagement with the theology of Martin Luther, but Luther's legacy is not unproblematic, nor is Luther the only teacher of the Lutheran Church. And so, what I will present here tonight, constructively rather than polemically, is a particular path charted through the maze of Lutheran viewpoints on the issue of the law and its eventual place in the Christian life, a path that I find the most persuasive, the most faithful to the thought of the reformer, and the most reflective of the scripture's own approach. But this is not the only path, and certainly not an uncontested one. Part one, the groundwork, law and gospel as theological categories. Let us begin by defining the terms, law and gospel. They are both theological categories that seek to grasp the difference that seems to characterize God's ways with humanity. Their undeniable advantage is that they are both derived from the scriptures. But this also poses a challenge. As interpretive categories, law and gospel aim at technical precision, which scriptural usage does not always exhibit. The biblical usage is considerably freer, especially where the word law or Torah in the Old Testament and nomos in the New Testament is concerned. This should not surprise us. Little of the Bible is what we might consider theological treatise. Instead, we find a variety of genres. 
various types of narrative, including chronicle, story, parable. There are wisdom sayings, speeches, prophetic utterances, poems and proverbs, pastoral letters and vision accounts. In addition, at the risk of stating the obvious, we should keep in mind that the Bible is written in human language. To be sure, some of it is archaic and peculiar to the text, but much of it is colloquial and everyday. Words always come with shades of meaning as well as cultural resonances. At times, those broader associations are useful. At other times, even if the word is the best available, it still challenges one to minimize misinterpretation and confusion, sometimes to the point of having to find or even invent another term. Luther, to put it briefly, employs the terms law and gospel, scripturally rich in all kinds of overtones, to reflect on and to make sense of a distinction in how God addresses human creatures in the scriptures. Once the distinction is grasped, one is then able truthfully to reproduce the divine address wherever and whenever the word of God is preached. For Luther, at its briefest, the gospel is a discourse about Christ. And I'm quoting here, that he is the son of God and became man for us, that he died and was raised, and that, he, that he, had, he has been established as a Lord over all things. As such, the gospel is present not only in the four gospels of the New Testament, but also in the epistles. More than that, Luther is quick to add even the teaching of the Old Testament prophets. In those places where they speak of Christ is nothing but the true, pure, and proper gospel. The focus of the gospel is on God's works. In particular, God's work in Jesus Christ, for the sake and on behalf of his human creatures. Thus, even further, insofar as God remains faithful to wayward humanity and announces in advance what he will do to redeem it from sin, death, and hell, the gospel permeates and constitutes the kernel of the entire Hebrew Bible. Luther explains, and that's the quotation on your handout, the Gospels and Epistles of the Apostles were written for this very purpose, to be our guides, to direct us to the writings of the prophets and of Moses in the Old Testament, so that we might there read and see for ourselves how Christ is wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in the manger. That is how he is comprehended in the writings of the prophets. The gospel shines with particular brightness against the backdrop of the Hebrew scriptures. For as reflected in them, the gospel appears as the decisive act of God's faithfulness, one of many acts. God's conclusive word, Emmanuel, on the subject of human unfaithfulness, mistrust and sin. And then Luther continues. But what a fine lot of tender and pious children we are. Luther goes on to say in order that we might not have to study in the scriptures and learn Christ there. We simply regard the entire Old Testament as of no account, as done for and no longer valid. Yet it alone bears the name Holy Scripture, and the gospel should really not be something written, but a spoken word brought forth, which brought forth the scriptures as Christ and the apostles have done. To sum up, the gospel has the character of promise and eventually a gift. It is conveyed in the indicative mood. It indicates what God has done, uh, what God does and will do for us. The gospel 
is a decisive statement on the character of God, God's love, God's faithfulness, and God's grace. The gospel wants to be proclaimed. In this light, the law embraces all the remaining ways of God with humans. It encompasses those modes of God's address to his creatures which put them and their actions in the spotlight. Luther says, whatever is not grace is law, whether it be civil law, the ceremonial law, or the Decalogue. The law's basic form is that of the imperative mood. It says, do this. What is important to note here is that when we speak of God's remaining ways with humans, what is included in this category are not just biblical laws, codes, prohibitions, mandates, and injunctions, all the imperatives found in the scriptures. Rather, what is meant is every aspect of human existence which lies outside the receptivity of the gospel. The most obvious is, of course, social organization, both as codified and as reflected in precedents, traditions, and customs. Luther believes that civil laws and customs, however imperfect they might be, perform a divine function insofar as they prevent the war of all against all and so contribute to the furthering of life. Thus, it is not so much specific laws that Luther sees as God's provision for his sinful creation, but the very idea of the law and of an authority to oversee compliance. The law's necessity and inescapability, the fact that society is simply inconceivable without it. Luther refers to this societal, regulatory use of the law as the civic use. This is not to discount the fact that to one particular society, the people of Israel, God is said to have given also specific positive laws and regulations, but it is the civic use of the law that is fundamental and divine. For Luther, the regulatory function that all civil law performs has to do specifically with the inhibition of wrongdoing. God, he writes, has ordained civic laws, indeed all laws to restrain transgressions. Therefore, every law was given to hinder sins. Though this is undoubtedly good for society, the law cannot create a good society or a good person. This is an absolutely crucial point. It's good for society, but it cannot create a good society or a good person. Though the law extracts righteous conduct, it can do so only by either threatening punishment or promising a reward, and thus it can accomplish more it cannot accomplish more than external conformity. Luther makes this point when he asks, and that's your second quote there. Does this mean that when the law restrains, restrains sins, it justifies or makes one righteous? Not at all, he answers. When I refrain from killing or from committing adultery or from stealing, or when I abstain from other sins, I do not do this voluntarily or from the love of virtue, but because I am afraid of the sword and of the executioner. This prevents me as the ropes or the chains prevent a lion or a bear from ravaging something that comes along. Therefore, restraint from sins is not righteousness, but rather an indication 
of unrighteousness. The law, to be sure, restrains wrongdoing. It restrains sin. But the crucial word here is restrain. What the law cannot do is extinguish sin and transform the heart. This is so because while it restrains sin externally for the purposes of social cohesion, it actually fuels sin internally. Thus, before we turn our attention to the transformation that only the gospel can effect, before we turn to Christian freedom as freedom from both sin and freedom from the law, and before we turn to what that means for the Christian life, we must first look into the heart and consider sin first. Part two, sin as self-justification. Following Augustine, Luther famously defines the essential motion of sin as being turned in on oneself, curved to the inside. The reason for this destructive curvature is best explained in Luther's exegesis of the book of Genesis. Adam was created to know God as the giver of all that is good. It is in light of God's self-giving that Adam was to consider God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In light of God's self-giving, Adam was to take God at his word. He was to trust God, having every evidence of divine goodness and generosity. The serpent, with its deviously phrased question, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? incites the man and the woman not so much to break God's command. That is certainly what happens. But only as a result of a more fundamental failure. The serpent's goal is to sow seeds of doubt about God's character. To lead the man and the woman to doubt that God is good. Luther could hardly be more emphatic. The serpent directs its attack at God's will. Before the fall, Adam and Eve, notes Luther, felt safe in God's goodness. Just as it is the nature of the eye to see, so it was the nature of reason and will in Adam to know God, to trust God, and to fear God, Luther adds. Adam and Eve's natural fear of God was related to this fundamental trust. One could say that they feared God because he was the one through whom they did not have to fear anything. A friend, yet an astonishingly formidable friend. In Luther's words, in man, there was the most admirable confidence in God. And man could not have been afraid even if he had seen the heavens collapse. For this reason, the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, according to Luther, gospel and law. It was Adam's worship. It was his service and the obedience he could offer God in the state of innocence. It was an expression of Adam's trust and faith and ultimate rest in God as a personal source of all that is good. It was Adam's self-expression as a creature of God. The credence that the man and the woman give to the serpent's lie turned the safety of their pre-fall existence into a prodigious fear, Luther says. And then he explains... 
By nature, we have become so thoroughly frightened that we fear even the things that are safe. This fear is crystallized first and foremost in humans' fear of God. Adam and Eve lose their confidence in God and are so filled with fear that they immediately think God is approaching to punish them. God appears to Adam and Eve as an oppressive taskmaster whose command they have transgressed, a powerful deceiver whose sole goal is to keep the man and the woman ignorant and submissive. Therefore, God's question, where are you, is heard by them as nothing but words of the law, as an accusation and as a threat. We shall get to this accusatory dimension of the law momentarily. Now, this appearance of God is, in part at least, a false God, a God of Satan's devising. To be sure, God is now judge over the sin of the humans who have given ear to the satanic lie, but it is not the case, as the serpent made it out to be, that God's will toward man is not good. Rather, as Luther puts it, it is our will that makes a devil out of God and shudders at the mention of his name, especially when it is troubled by God's judgment. But Adam and Eve do not know that. For sin itself is the real withdrawal from God. And in light of the false image that stands at its center, it can only be followed by flight. This is the nature of sin, Luther writes, that the father man, man withdraws from God, the father he still desires to withdraw. This post-lapsarian, post-fall fear is really an avoidance and hatred of God as man not only does not love God any longer, but flees from him, hates him, and desires to be and to live without him. Because at the serpent's instigation, God now appears as a ruthless and deceitful despot, accusing the man and the woman of disobedience to what seems like an arbitrary and debilitating command, prohibition. The man and the woman have only one course of action left, or so they believe. They attempt desperately to excuse and exonerate themselves and to shift the blame. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. The serpent tricked me and I ate. Their posture is one of self-justification at another's cost. In the end, Luther notes, the guilt is all put on God himself, and God is blamed for capriciously displaying undeserved cruelty toward his creatures. What the story of Adam and Eve captures, especially as Luther interprets it, is that this need to justify oneself, to whitewash oneself, to appear in the right, to be righteous, whatever the cost, comes to characterize human existence insofar as it is lived in separation from God, suspicious of God, deeply aware that it lies within human, human power to abuse another person's self-giving, aware that it is possible for us to abuse another person's self-giving and therefore fearful that one's goodness and generosity may also be taken advantage of, humans cannot but become turned in on themselves. This is the all-pervasive, prodigious fear that Luther refers to. Only I myself am truly for myself. Humans must therefore immunize themselves against the world's unwelcome incursions, including the unpredictability and self-seeking of others, 
or to make the world secure for themselves, minimizing their dependence on the unpredictable and selfish others. This is not to say that the sinner necessarily trusts himself with utmost self-confidence, but he trusts himself more than he trusts others and then blames his shortcomings precisely on the shortcomings of others, his wrongdoing on their wrongdoing, his violence on their violence, his self-justification on their self-justification. At the peril of destruction, the sinner cannot but be a judge in his own case, infinitely lenient toward himself and merciless toward fellow humans. Karl Barth, building on Luther's insight, has articulated this inescapability of judgment in human existence and the debilitating burden it ultimately constitutes. And that's your quote number three. Barth writes, and I think he gets Luther very well here, it is a nuisance and at bottom an intolerable nuisance to have to be the person who gives sentence. It is a constraint always to have to be convincing ourselves that we are innocent, we are in the right. It is similarly an affliction always to have to make it clear to ourselves so that we can cling to it that others are in one way or another in the wrong and to have to rack our brains how we can make it clear to them and either bring them to an amendment of their ways or give them up as hopeless, withdrawing from them or fighting against them as the enemies of all that is good and true and beautiful. It is a terrible thing to know good and evil if only in this ostensible and ineffective way and to have to live with this doubtful knowledge. Part three, the law of lawlessness. The upshot of Luther's view of sin as inability to trust God and the resultant compulsion towards self-justification is that the sinner's life is a life under the law. As we unpack the concept of the law further, it will become clear that the law inescapably brings with itself accusation. The law, even that inner law which determines our very life as sinners, always accuses. For even as one judges others and justifies oneself, one is constantly delivered up to the judgment of others, which one must do one's best to live up to or deflect. What this means specifically for our Western context, our own Western context, is that while we may live in a permissive culture, a culture whose gospel is being yourself, we certainly do not live in an antinomian or lawless culture. The creed of Western societies, to be sure, is unconditional acceptance, a celebration of diversity, difference, and freedom from artificially imposed constraints that stifle our individuality. Yet ours is also a society that directs even its nonconformists to special stores where they can buy mass-produced clothing for them. One acts out one's identity, but only according to a socially approved script, a point that David Halperin makes unwittingly in an article, How to Be Gay, published in the Chronicle of Higher Education. He warns, just because you happen to be a gay man does not mean that you don't have to learn how to become one. One thus gives expression to one's identity, but only following a pre-packaged path of achievement. The can of seeming freedom 
hides within itself an ought. Because one can, one must. This disjunction between what allegedly really is the case and what really is the case is responsible for the fact that the basic mode of our social functioning is self-creation. Self self-creation that in reality is not a release, but a constant corseting of the self, which will not quite fit into its made-to-measure garb. Because self-creation in our society, and in fact in all societies, has this public dimension, it is always self-creation in the face of judgment. One craves others' recognition, and one simultaneously fears that one will be judged to be maladjusted, or even worse, fake, self-hating, and in self-denial. None of us wants to join the ranks of the invisible and the disposable. So we must justify ourselves before others. Like Facebook users, and as Facebook users, we want to feel that we are unique and different, that we are ourselves. But we need this uniqueness explicitly affirmed, given a thumbs up, shown that what we are, where we are, what we read, what we eat, what we hold dear, etc., that all that is likable and worth other people's while. This process of self-justification for the sake of being justified, this process of self-justification for the sake of being justified by others, is perhaps the most acute in its economic dimension. John Milbank, among others, has drawn attention to, this, to the manner in which advanced capitalism relies on maintaining people's formal freedom as subjects while pushing them down the path of self-commodification and voluntary enslavement. What drives this commodification of the self, I believe, is precisely the promise of having oneself publicly affirmed in the safe haven of already recognized products and services. In other words, we rely on commodities and goods sanctioned by the advertising industry since they are proven to bring out who I really am and simultaneously also guarantee admiration. But the cost to the self, in case we should believe we are still in control, is hardly a one-time compromise. For just as rapidly, we are instructed to discard those very things as potentially disfiguring. Today's cell phone testifies to my technological savvy. Yesterday's cell phone makes me look uncool, even an embarrassment to my friends, when I know for a fact and want others to know that I am a really cool person. <laughs> and so, without complaint or question, we submit to the strict regime that promises a radical unveiling of the self. We follow the prescribed paths on a never-ending pilgrimage to self-revelation. We do so even when the failures we cannot live down and successes we can no longer live up to call into question this whole idea of bringing out the real me. The me that shows itself to be manipulative, delusional, and not all that pretty in high definition. By now, in stark reversal, in a stark reversal, we settle instead on a safe, socially palatable projection and carry on as before, investing just as much effort into making sure that the real me never comes to light. But one might object. The real me often does come to light in all its disfigurement and does so <coughs> deliberately. Today, writes First Things editor Ara Reno, most of us 
participate, however half-heartedly, in a permissive cult cultural sensibility, a pervasive mentality of therapeutic self-affirmation. However, it is not insignificant that people actually feel compelled to submit even their morally questionable acts to the verdict of society. They do so explicitly by exposing their hearts and bodies for others to see and approve, or implicitly by invoking so social sanction in the form of everybody's doing it anyway. Therapeutic self-affirmation must reckon with the conditions of social affirmation, and cultural permissiveness is governed by rigorous procedures. That our society might be noticeably laxer on questions of traditional morality does not alleviate the relentlessness of constantly having to justify oneself in face of public judgment. This inescapability of self-justification is further reinforced and complicated by systemic uncertainties of the late modern society. As sociologist Zygmunt Bauman points out, today we have no choice but to try as best we can to resolve those uncertainties in our individual biographies. We are doomed to make sense of what it means to be oneself in the context of pervasive risks posed by the global economy, transnational power, and the ever-looming uncertainty of the future. This is a tall order, and the obvious impossibility of this task involves us in a contradiction. The contradiction is defined, according to Bauman, by a disjunction between self-assertion, from which we cannot withdraw, and self-constitution or self-securing, of which we are now decidedly incapable. We have no choice but to keep on going, with no promise of ever getting anywhere and no hope of deliverance. The important conclusion that we can draw from this all-too-short a sketch is that while our society unconditionally recognizes difference, etc., it does not automatically recognize me. This recognition I must achieve so that it becomes true also for me. This recognition I must achieve. In this important respect, in the sense that my social visibility and, so to speak, salvation are by no means a given, the antinomianism of the culture at large is, as, is at best an antinomianism de jure, that is in theory, but not de facto. Part four, the law as accusation. Considering that our very existence as sinners insofar as it revolves around judgment and self-justification, always delivers us up to an accusation. We can now qualify the purpose of the civic use of the law as that of preventing us from being judges in our own case. This is exactly how Luther understands the purpose of civic law, seeing it as grounded on the principle nemo judex in causa sua, no one should be a judge in their own case. It is on this basis that the law brings us together as a society, by wresting away from us, as much as it can, arbitrary judgment and arbitrary self-justification. But, as we have already indicated, even as it restrains sin, and does so at its very root by preventing us from always having it our way in judgment, the law does not extinguish the drive 
to justify oneself. It only makes it more difficult. But the law does not change the heart. Rather, the law too, often and rather easily, falls prey to our self-justifying attempts. That is why Luther is emphatic that by following the letter of the law, one can actually do great injustice. One may use the law to justify one's mistreatment, lack of attention, inaction, or unwillingness to become involved or responsible for another. And then still pat oneself on the back and say, I've been doing nothing but following the law. For Luther, a case in point was the harshness with which some peasants were treated in the wake of the Peasants' Revolt of 1525. Some had been caught up in the events against their will, yet they had received the same punishment as the willful rebels. If we do not make exceptions, Luther insisted, and strictly follow the law, we do the greatest injustice of all. For Luther, all laws that regulate men's actions must be subject to justice, their mistress, because of the innumerable and varied circumstances which no one can anticipate or set down. The law by itself does not guarantee justice. It requires a just person to apply it and to do so with equity. This observation that the law may also fuel self-justification, even as it ostensibly curbs sinful behavior, finally brings us into the territory of the so-called theological or spiritual use of the law, which, as Luther says, serves to increase transgressions. This use of the law pertains specifically to the positive laws given in the scriptures, especially in the Hebrew Bible. Some of those laws, especially the second table of the Decalogue, have been inherited by our legal system and also perform a civic function. In distinction from their civic use, however, their theological function consists in their proclamation, such that the accusation and judgment which the law conveys are constantly before one's eyes and with incessant force exhibit in the theater of one's conscience the disjunction between how one wishes to come across and how one actually is. The theological use of the law is to drive a wedge between one's projected self-image and one's underlying self-seeking. Luther comments, and that is your quotation number four. This is the primary purpose of the law of Moses, that through it sin might grow and be multiplied, especially in the conscience. Yet this use of the law is completely unknown to the hypocrites, the sophists in the universities and to all men who go along in the presumption of the righteousness of the law or of their own righteousness. To curb and crush this monster and raging beast that is the presumption of religion, God is obliged on Mount Sinai to give a new law with such pomp and with such an awesome spectacle that the entire people is crushed with fear. For since reason becomes haughty with this human presumption of righteousness and imagines that on account of this it is pleasing to God, therefore God has to send some Hercules, namely the law to attack, subdue and destroy this monster with full force. For if someone is not a murderer, adulterer or thief and abstains from, from external sins, as the Pharisee did, he would swear, being possessed by the devil, that he is a righteous man. Therefore, he develops the presumption of righteousness and relies on his good works. 
God cannot soften and humble this man or make him acknowledge his misery and damnation any other way than by the law. Hence, God says through Jeremiah, My word is a hammer which breaks the rock in pieces. For as long as the presumption of righteousness remains in a man, there, remains, there remain immense pride, self-trust, smugness, hate of God, contempt of grace and mercy, ignorance of the promises and of Christ. Because the battle is ultimately for the soul, whether the law succeeds in this task of demolishing every presumption of righteousness ultimately rests with the Holy Spirit. It is never a given from our side that the preaching of the law will fundamentally disturb the sinner's conscience and make one yearn for final peace and conclusive justification. The task, at any rate, cannot be accomplished without bringing the gospel into the picture. As Luther puts it, such is the working of the law that when the law stands alone without the gospel and the knowledge of grace, it leads to despair and ultimate impenitence. Without the gospel, the law only exposes one's self-justification and accuses one of being judge in one's own case, but the law leaves one with no other option. It condemns, but does not guarantee justice. It is the gospel that brings to light the full extent of one's sin. It is the gospel that brings to light the full extent of one's sin. For unlike the law, the gospel does not show one to be merely a lawbreaker or an inveterate self-justifier who will misuse even the law in a self-serving way. Instead, the gospel shows that one has no reason to be like that. So it exposes not simply our self-justification and makes us confronted, but it also shows us that we have no reason to be like that. It shows, us, it shows one, that is the gospel, to be in flight from God when one, when one has absolutely no cause to be. For contrary to the satanic lie, God is good and God is faithful and God has already justified the sinner as it announces God's actions for us and for our salvation the gospel shows that the sinner's yearning for a justifier is not in vain God has anticipated it thus in light of the gospel the fundamental original sin is shown to be not disobedience but unbelief and unfaithfulness. Mistrust that God is who he says he is. That is the fundamental sin. Only the gospel penetrates to this sin and alone calls it into question. It calls into question one's entire self-justifying being and it kills and it makes alive. Part 5. The gospel and the new person. If the law succeeds in disturbing the conscience, the law throws one into a state of agony, a living death. One can no longer go back, divided as one is against oneself, nor yet go forward, healed and whole. It is through the gospel that one dies with Christ and rises to a new life, a life of freedom. 
For Luther, the Christian is a Lord of all, free from sin, death, and hell. The Christian is also free from the law. What law? The law in the technical sense that we have established, and thus first, the law as exhibited in the sinner's old self, the law of self-justification, of judging others and living up to judgment. And second also, the law which accuses the sinner of being a judge in his own case and seeks to prevent it for the sake of social cohesion. And third, the law as it explicitly steps up accusation to leave the sinner wounded and vulnerable. All those dimensions of the law, the sinner is free from. Certainly, Luther affirms, it is true that Christians, so far as they themselves are concerned, are subject neither to law nor sword and have need of neither. What Luther means to say is not that the Christian life is now shapeless, up for grabs, that God does nothing beyond acknowledging and accepting the sinner and that the sinner is now free, to put it in Paul's idiom, to sin all the more. For Luther, God's justifying act has ontological consequences. The sinner is not simply pronounced righteous, but raised with Christ to a new Christ-like life. The Christian is a Lord of all, free from the law, and in this freedom, the Christian is also the servant of all. In the remainder of this lecture, let me briefly reflect on the new person in Christ, the fundamental orientation of this person to God and to the neighbor, and then briefly consider the role of the commandment in Christian life. We've arrived now at the threshold at which we are dealing with the Christian and the Christian's attitude to what has come before and what lies forward, what lies ahead. First, as Christians, we are radically distanced from ourselves, from our life in the law. We enter, Luther, and this is Luther's language, Christ's bridal chamber, and shut all the world out, including our entire fleshly life up to this point and even from now on. I am, writes Luther, pulled out of my skin and transferred into Christ and into his kingdom, which is a kingdom of grace, righteousness, peace, joy, life, salvation, and eternal glory. Second, we are also showered with gifts. As Christ takes upon himself our sin, he takes upon himself our sin and our death, we become joined to him by the wedding ring of faith and receive his entire person. Faith, writes Luther, takes hold of Christ the Savior himself and possesses him in the heart. Among the gifts bestowed on us are, in Luther's own words, Christ's life, in which he swallowed up death, his righteousness, by which he blotted out sin, and his salvation, with which he overcame everlasting damnation. A poor man, dead in sin and consigned to hell, can hear nothing more comforting than this precious and ten tender message about Christ. From the bottom of his heart, he must laugh and be glad over it. And those are Luther's words. Though this may seem abstract, abstract at first blush, the transformation is nothing of the sort, nor is it limited to subjective perception 
and otherwise hidden. It takes place not only in the heart, but it happens first and foremost where God publicly and conclusively communicates his benefits. This transformation happens and is constantly reinforced where the gospel is not merely a story of works past, but the ongoing work of God. For Luther, remember, the gospel always concerns God himself at work, even now and even at the 11th hour. The transformation, therefore, takes place in worship. It has a very concrete setting where a new society, a new economy is formed, sustained by God himself, rather than being based on our inner compulsion to judgment and self-justification. It is in worship that we are incorporated into Christ's body. Here, God uses human hands and water to make himself known to those whom society judges intellectually unfit and immature, babies. Here, God invites his people to a table where there is no shortage of food and no need to compete for it, the supper of Christ's body and blood. Here, above all, a call goes out to all the weary to rest freely in the peace and goodness of the Lord. Part 6. The Christian and the Law. This is a lot of information. I'm very grateful that you guys are sticking with me. Um, I'm sure we'll have a good, um, um, good discussion afterwards. The Christian and the law. This distance from self and marriage to Christ, which take place and are reaffirmed in this public way, have tremendous practical implications. In unpacking those, Luther, Luther draws on certain strands of medieval mysticism, especially the tradition associated with um, a 14th century writing called the Theologia Germanica. The Theologia criticizes what it calls imagined detachment and the desire to be untouched by creaturely life, not dependent on anything in this world, just like God in eternity. Or what we referred to earlier as immunizing oneself against the world's unwelcome intrusions, including the unpredictability and self-seeking of others. The, theolo the Theologia's ideal is rather what it calls the Christ life. So no imagined detachment, but rather the Christ life. A life free from the self and lived for the sake of the good. Its goal is true obedience, neither out of fear nor for the sake of reward. Christ's humanity, the Theologia declares, was nothing but a house and habitation for God. To such a life we too are called. Luther develops this theme of a life in Christ, active in the world, in the freedom of a Christian, a treatise, one of his programmatic treatises he wrote in 1520, from which comes also the description that we've already used of the Christian as a simultaneous Lord and servant of all. Appealing to Philippians 2, Luther describes the Christian as a two-nature being. We are divinized, through the communication of Christ's life. We receive Christ's person. He is ours. Christ is present in faith itself. We are, in a, in a manner of speaking, divinized through the communication of Christ's life and his victory, his concrete life, 
And therefore, like Christ, we are now able to descend into and put on the neighbor with his needs or her needs and with his sins or her sins. With Christ being our very nature, we can now put on the neighbor's humanity. Christians become Christ's to others in order to share with them their righteousness, to liberate, and God willing, also to transform. Two things are important to note here. First, with their lives hidden with Christ in God, to invoke another biblical image of Christian identity, Christians are infinitely more than they could ever make of themselves, than they could ever make of themselves. They are heavenly beings, Luther's phrase. They are thus freed from preoccupation with themselves, with their own being, or their own self-justification. Second, with their vital mooring in Christ and, Christians, uh, and Christian worship's economy of grace, Christians also gain a different and hitherto impossible perspective on themselves. Distanced from the life of self-justification under the law, Christians are for the first time able to see not the performance of the law, its claims, accusations and opportunities, but the neighbor as the ultimate and final goal. They can see the neighbor in all his or her individuality as a desperate sinner or a fellow brother or sister in Christ. The fundamental question of the Christian life as a life of freedom and service is therefore, what does my neighbor need? That's the fundamental question that pertains to Christian sanctification. What does my neighbor need? We can hardly overestimate the importance of the singular focus on the neighbor as the Christian now descends in this sort of Christological move, as the Christian now descends into the world structured by the law. The Christian lives not in detachment, but rather, like Christ, descends into the world structured by the law. Though Christians, Luther claims, have no need of the law, they submit to the temporal government and its laws for the sake of the gospel to show that the larger society is of vital concern to them. Above all, Christians submit to temporal authority so that by exercising the law on its behalf, they might be able to serve the afflicted neighbor, to help him that he may have peace and that his enemy may be cured. The Christian, even as she re-enters the world's structures, is actually able to see the law, all law, formal and unwritten, from a critical distance. This involves not only awareness that the law as such turns people into hypocrites, fuels their self-justification, and reduces them to their own works. Included here is also the insight that by observing the law and nothing but the law, one may in fact do great injustice to the neighbor. One may hide behind the law, as we have already said. The law, as we have noted, must be used justly. It must be used justly. It must be used with equity. This means being able to consider the other before one considers oneself. For Luther, only Christians are able to love the neighbor as a person and to acknowledge the person's fundamental dignity before jumping to a judgment based on the law.
The Peasants' Revolt may have, bit, may have been a bit of an exceptional situation for Luther. Elsewhere, he maintains with far less reflectiveness that in society, obedience to the law must be strictly required, and sincerely believes that this will prevent further rebellion, as long as the princes, and that's the caveat, as long as the princes too treat their subjects justly. Still, his insight about the potential for injustice lurking in every social order is the one to emphasize. For us, it must be viewed against the backdrop of, and I'm going to quote Zygmunt Bauman again, Zygmunt Bauman's brilliant analysis of the Holocaust. Not indeed as a product of anti-Semitic sentiment, but of the perfectly well-functioning modern state. Baumann challenges the widespread assumption that moral behavior is born of the operation of society and maintained by the operation of societal institutions, that society is essentially a humanizing, moralizing device, and that accordingly the incidence of immoral conduct on anything more than a marginal scale may be explained only as an effect of, of the malfunctioning of normal social arrangements. Baumann draws attention to a variety of aspects of the modern state that made the Holocaust possible. He points to rationalization of behavior in terms of costs and effects, which rules out opposition by appealing to such rational grounds. He points out the state's emphasis on efficiency, excellence, and loyalty in the performance of duty. He talks about the moralization of technology in such a way that only ends but not means are subject to moral evaluation. The state's diffusion of responsibility that is characteristic of all organizations. Production of social distance, both in actual terms, which, which means that our actions can have an impact on those we will never encounter face to face, and in psychological terms, by deferring to expert knowledge. All these, Baumann argues, produce immoral behavior in otherwise perfectly moral, caring, and loving people. To be able to resist this influence, the moral impulse must come from somewhere else. Morality, Baumann concludes, is not a product of society. Morality is something society manipulates, exploits, redirects, jams. In light of Baumann's critique of the modern bureaucratic society, one must agree with Luther that the fault always lies with the person, but one cannot agree that it never also lies with the office. And this makes Christians' critical participation in the legal structures of society all the more necessary. Baumann, appears to, uh, I'm sorry, Baumann appeals to Emmanuel Levinas, a French philosopher, to argue that responsibility is the essential, primary, and fundamental structure of subjectivity. Responsibility is the essential, primary, and fundamental structure of subjectivity. Morality is the primary structure of intersubjective relation. That's a bit of a mouthful. Um, in other words, morality is a basic fact of our humanness. It arises as conscious of another, we also become conscious of ourselves. My relation to another thus logically precedes all formal structures, order and laws. Baumann also shows how easily this focus on the neighbor is diverted onto the structure itself. 
within which we must make it, prove ourselves, justify our existence, and be ourselves according to a rigorous standard of what, it, of what that means. We may, of course, try to manipulate this structure, but in reality it is the structure that manipulates us. To be sure, it may curb our sinful desires, but it will also suppress our moral self for the sake of loyalty to itself. This destruction of the moral self is, in fact, inevitable if it is indeed the case that we are all, even the apparent cultural antinomians, in thrall to a debilitating and oppressive undertow of law that characterizes human existence. And in this sense, the psalmist surely is right when he says there is no one who does good. Luther's, that was sort of a philosophical detour, um, Luther's important insight in this context, right, that social structure does not guarantee morality, something that we've already discussed uh, theologically. But Luther's important insight in this context is that the moral subject truly arises only when Christ intervenes between me and my existence in the law. The truly moral subject is born of an encounter with the risen Lord. When, as Eberhard Jungel puts it, I am <coughs> elementally interrupted and become a person separate from my works. The moral doer, the doer of good works, must be raised to life first, outside of the law, in order then to descend into the world's law and in its midst to do good works. A doer, Luther insists, does not get his name on the basis of works that have been performed, he gets it on the basis of works that are to be performed. The doer comes first. The doer is created by Christ. For Christians do not become righteous by doing righteous works, but once they have been justified by faith in Christ, then they do righteous works. The Christian freedom and Christian service are thus structured by the gospel, which bestows Christ and conveys his very life to the Christian. Almost there. But in her service, the Christian does more than simply curtail the law's propensity to judge and to accuse. To be sure, the Christian is a realist. The civic use of the law and temporal authority remain necessary. For all their abuse, for all the self-justification that they only fuel, for all the deployment for even demoralizing purposes, Luther says that use of the law remains necessary. And that's the final quote on your um, handout, I think. Christians are few and far between. That's, that's, the, that's the realism. Christians are few and far between. Therefore, it is out of the question that there should be a common Christian government over the whole world, or indeed over a single uh, country, or any considerable body of people. For the wicked always outnumber the good. Hence, a man who would venture to govern an entire country or the world with the gospel would be like a shepherd who would put together in one fold wolves, lions, eagles, and sheep and let them mingle freely with one another, saying, Help yourselves and be good and peaceful toward one another. The fold is open and there's plenty of food. You need have no fear of dogs and clubs. The sheep would doubtless keep the peace and allow themselves to be fed and governed peacefully, but they would not live long, nor would one beast survive another. But for all this realism, 
The Christian knows that the law does not and will not exempt one from personal involvement, from taking responsibility, that's the moral subject, from taking responsibility for another, from exercising justice. The law is not a substitute for attentiveness to the neighbor. And there is yet more to the Christian's role. The Christian does not simply bring interpersonal recognition into the world of the law. Rather, from this vantage point of freedom from the law, the Christian is able to deliberate on the nature of laws. It is our task to promote laws that, that best curb acting as judge in one's case, and instead promote the good and flourishing of the neighbor and of society without giving in to one's desire for self-justification. Thus, sometimes the, Christian wor the Christian's works will accord with the specific law structure, at other times they will oppose it, but all the time the doer's focus will be not on the law, but singularly on the neighbor. Deep breath, the final part. The Christian and the divine command. All this raises the interesting and much debated question whether the law plays a role in expressing, guiding, and shaping the Christian life itself. Is there a third use of the law beyond the law's accusation, which applies to Christians insofar as they still remain sinners, and beyond the civil law, in whose structures the Christians participate for the sake of the neighbor? In addition to these two, which Luther explicitly names, is there yet another one? What are we to make of the command given to Adam and Eve in the garden, or the extensive exhortations or catalogues of virtues in the New Testament? In my view, the expression, the third use of the law, is a misnomer. All the more unfortunate because it's not just a matter of semantics. The term, as I see it, ignores the reality of the law as grounded in the fundamental human compulsion to judgment and self-justification. This compulsion, as we have noted, is inevitably externalized as custom and legal code for the sake of preventing arbitrary judgment, but this merely transfers to the law what humans otherwise do without it, and in reality opens the law to increased self-justification and judgment on the part of those who use it. Philip Melanchthon's adage that the law always accuses is thus fundamentally true. The expression, the third use of the law, further ignores the fact that it is the gospel that not only gives rise to the new person, but also motivates and orients the person in a Christ-formed way. For this reason, Luther insists that Christians do of their own accord much more than all the laws and teachings can demand. In other words, they do what is needed before such a demand is even issued. Christian service follows not the letter of the law, but flows from the Christological structure of the doer's being. By his incarnation, Christ defines decisively what it means to be human. And he does it for all of us. Thus Christians, as Christ's to the neighbor, are able to act in situations or to take into account circumstances which the law has not foreseen or provided for in detail. Christians can do so with loving sensitivity, especially toward the neighbor in bondage. This is what it means to live out of the gospel. 
So what do we do with the divine commands, such as the one given to Adam in the garden? Here, we would do well to recall that, as Luther puts it, the command was for Adam gospel and law. It was his worship. The command was never detached from the one who gave it. And thus, one's focus was never on obedience to the command, but on faithfulness to its giver. The command provided an opportunity to express this faithfulness. Just as tilling the garden and its stewardship or the naming of the animals did also. The command turns into law only once the person of its giver is called into question. At that point, it turns into a constraint on one's self-justification and at the same time suggests a way to justify oneself by judging and rejecting the one who gave it. The Christian life can, to some degree, be expressed by means of commands and exhortations, insofar as those are recognized as given through the goodness and graciousness of God, and thus lead one, lead one to focus not on conformity to the letter, but instead allow one to express one's faith and gratitude to God. But we need to keep in mind that such commands and exhortations never seek nor are they able to articulate the totality of the Christian life or to substitute for its Christological basis. Their purpose in relation to the neighbor is to guide our deliberation in a way that, in, in a way that intensifies our attention to the neighbor and thus gives God glory and praise. But the command never absolves us of personal responsibility, of personal responsibility for the neighbor. It never exempts one from love. The command is never the point. Unlike the law, which forces the self-justifying sinner to pay attention to it, the command, never, the command seeks to turn our gaze away from itself. Note what happens when Luther attempts to transpose what socially and theologically functions as the law into the realm of the command. He comments, for example, on the commandment, you shall not steal. This is what he says. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way, comma, but help him to improve and protect his possessions and income. Beyond conformity to the prohibition, there opens up a potentially infinite deliberative realm in which we are called to exhibit and deploy our Christ life. Like the Samaritan passing by a half-dead naked man lying by the side of the road, we must ask ourselves, even in the face of the command, what does my neighbor need? And we must take responsibility, we must take responsibility in a way that honors God. Considering the precedence of the Christ life as the motor and the structure of Christian agency, some Lutheran theologians prefer to speak not of the third use of the law, but of the second use of the gospel. This is not to downplay the relative importance of the command, but to bring to light its foundation as radically different from that which drives the law. Just as the civil and accusatory functions of the law arise naturally out of the fabric of self-justification and are sustained by it, so the command with the broad vista onto which it opens arises out of the glorious exchange that creates the Christ life and is sustained 
by it. To put it very simply, the gospel does not merely empower us to obey and conform to the law, but to do more. To do more without waiting for the law's demand. To do more for the neighbor. To do more to glorify God. It empowers us to exhibit the work of Christ as members of his body in our lives. It empowers us to love in a richly textured and personal way as the body of Christ in the midst of this world. This is our worship. To conclude, to repeat the preliminary thesis of this lecture, while there is certainly both room and a need for moral deliberation, the Christian life cannot be reduced to a use of the law. To argue this point, I have shown first that the law is not the motor of the Christian life. The law tries to counter the underlying dynamic of sin by externalizing it and so countering it from the outside. It remains based on and fundamentally driven by the dynamic of sin. Second, the law falls short of capturing and conveying the shape and personal character of the Christian life. And we can now qualify this thesis that the Christ life does not shy away from the world of law for the neighbor's sake. Christians are called to take seriously, to deliberate on, and if need be to challenge even good positive laws. And furthermore, the Christian life in its fundamental orientation to the neighbor benefits from exhortation, but it is never exhausted by it, nor is it able to focus on it without capturing it into its inner dynamic of moral deliberation. Thank you very much. I, I realize that, that, was, that was a lot of information and a lot of material, but um, hopefully the broad outline is, is, re is relatively clear, and I'll be, I'll be happy to answer any questions that you that you may have. Your last statement uh, about the Christ life, if you do more, doesn't have, that have to be in a descriptive as opposed to prescriptive, almost in re reflecting over what mm -hmm. takes as opposed to planning mm -hmm. what you're going to do next? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 is, it, is, it is descriptive, um, and the description is always dot dot dot, right? In a sense, you can you can never you can never provide for the richness. And in some sense, um, my argument here was that the dynamic of being caught up with Christ into God, as Luther puts it, and then descending with Christ into the neighbor, captures that better as a certain grammar of being, as a certain way of being, than um, um, simply laws and commands and exhortations that we could provide. We could never exhaust um, the richness of that. And that's not even the point. The point is focus on, um, on the neighbor. At least that's, that's, how, I, um, that's how I interpret um, uh, Luther in this, in this context. I think you said that the law requires a righteous person to administer it. Mm -hmm. But isn't it really kind of the opposite way around and that it requires the law is righteous and the unrighteous have perverted it. I mean, I, to me, I think it's a kind of a flip side of the coin that you were talking about mm -hmm. that we misunderstand the law mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, as Christ said, you know, to 
if you've hated your heart, you know, if you've hated your murder and your heart already, do you think yeah. effect, I mean, is it more of a weakness or a standalone these unrighteous are incapable of applying the righteous law? Um, I would, well, I suppose what I'm, what I'm, what I'm, um, what I've done in this piece is in some sense drive a distinction. Um, between the law and command, right? That the law is always kind of a self-contained totality. It's a, it's a structure, it's a framework. But um, the law um, can be anything. It can be perceived as sinister, it can be perceived as good, it can be perceived as an opportunity for exploitation unless we know who the lawgiver is, unless we sort of know the, the, the heart of the person that, that gave it. But um, my, my argument here has been to treat the law in a, very, um, in a very technical sense as really, yes, of course, it is God who provides it. But the law feeds on the very dynamic of our own self-justification. It's simply, I, my argument has been that it simply takes it away from us. And where we, where we judge others and justify ourselves, the law takes that away from us and tries to sort of create an objective framework within, within, within which our judgment cannot be simply so, self, so arbitrary and, and our just, uh, self, um, justification cannot be so arbitrary. Um, and in that sense, I think the law as, a, as, as something that exhibits that dynamic, um, even though it is provided by God, even though we naturally sort of generate it out, out of ourselves, um, it, it, it arises out of that dynamic and it almost immediately falls prey to misuse. And, and, and in that sense, I think it has to be distinguished from the command, which uh, is, is a little different in character. And, it's, and I see the command as a little bit more open. Um, I think, you know, and some laws can be, tra can be transposed, and Luther does it in the small catechism, into the realm of the command. But, but interestingly enough, as he does it, um, as he articulates the prohibition, for example, Immediately after the comma, there is simply one phrase after another after another that never exhausts what the positive aspect should be that can simply not be captured by, even by the law itself. I mean, take for example, I've, I've, I've quoted the one about um, the, the commander about stealing, uh, but you know, thou shalt not bear false witness. Luther says, of course, we should not speak ill of um, fellow humans, but that's not it. As a command, it then becomes, but I should always support, speak well, um, and, and really strive to put the best construction on. Um, on and, and I think that is really sort of, um, that is really, that dynamic comes from somewhere else. Not from, not from, not from the law itself, but, but really from the Christ life, um, which really, um, you know, can be discursively articulated by means of the commands, but, but the commands are really grounded in a very different grammar, in a, not the grammar of self-justification that is now taken away from us into the law and becomes objective, and somehow we can, you know, the war of all against all is um, forestalled, but it's a very different dynamic of sort of descent into the neighbor um, without at the same time condoning everything that the neighbor does, because we should also be aware of the, the fact that even the neighbor whom we seek to support may be simply hell-bent on self-justifying. Um, so, yeah.
That's a very long-winded answer to your question. But um, so I, I I know what you're saying. But I guess as a, as a Lutheran, I have a I I have a, a, a more negative view of the law than probably some other Christians would have. <laughs> uh, that's a that's a that's a that sort of that's, that almost comes with with your Lutheranism. You're born with it. Um, <laughs> Peter, thank you for that. That was a wonderful lecture. Um, who do you think? Are those within the tradition, I'm thinking here within the Protestant conversation that we're having in our three weeks together, who do you think reduces the Christian life um, to attendance to the law? I mean, that, I mean, that seems to be one of the issues that you're trying right. to leaning against. That's one question I have. And then the, and the other one is, and this is my naughty side, I, 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 I want to uh-huh. say... I want to say you gave one of the best defenses of the third use I've heard in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, in, in the sense mm-hmm. that, for example, Luther's divinized man from Philippians mm-hmm. 2. Yeah. The law is not accusing that person, is it? Mm-hmm. Think, even in Luther's account. So in that divinized reality are being brought into Christ, being risen with him. Um, when I raised the question, then you pressed this very hard. I thought it was very, very challenging to me. Mm-hmm. What does my neighbor need, and what's my responsibility in that? That seems to me to be a kind of conscious attention to um, the law. Mm-hmm. I, I think. Well, I mean, I do want to, in some sense. Um, well, I just want to say I don't want to say rescue, but but make room for the reality of the command as something that can really guide moral deliberation. But the force. And the and the sort of uh, that which really sort of drives it, and what makes what makes it exceed the command itself, and maybe even uh, go against the command. Like you know, it's sort of like Christ healing on the Sabbath. What does my neighbor need? Uh, the Samaritan passing by the dead man who. Uh, who the priest feared might pollute him and make him unfit for worship, uh, right? There's, there's that, that kind of moral deliberation makes makes the law into 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 the penultimate, not really the ultimate um, uh, thing. But uh, in answer to your question, I think um, I think in general it's a fault of um, certain types of Protestantism that uh, makes it turn to the law for the description of the Christian life because Protestants tend to have a very attenuated understanding of justification. God unconditionally approves, your, approves of who you are and justifies you. Well, then how do we, what's the Christian life then? People naturally, I think, turn to the law. And what I was trying to, to press here, the point that I was trying to make, that for Luther, for example, justification is, far, is a far richer reality than simply God saying, well, you're justified, um, or, you know, I see you as righteous. We are given Christ. I mean, Luther, Luther's language is so ontological. We are, and, and it's in it, and both in an abstract way, we are given Christ. Um, his whole person becomes ours. He is in faith. We are in, we are in the bridal chamber of Christ. We are united to him. That language is extremely, is extremely rich. Um, but that's the abstract portion of it. The, the, the more concrete portion of it is really what happens in worship and how that is a very different economy from the economy of having to vie for resources or uh, for having to prove yourself before you're eligible, that which characterizes our life everywhere, um, right? Here we have, um, like I said, the touch of God that is available even to babies who are intellectually unfit um, for, one might say, for, for, for God, you know, should not be sort of considered equal, you know, or, or, or uh, fit for it. Uh, here we have a table where food is never scarce. I mean, there is a, there's kind of a reality in which uh, if we go, ab- if we go um, about our worship in the right way, should really 
make us realize that this something is happening here in the midst uh, uh, of the assembly, which is more than simply God saying, "I see you as righteous." Well, now go to, go and you know go about your Christian life in some sort of legalistic way. Uh, so I, I, I mean, you know, I, I think that there may there may not be necessarily theologians, but I think I think a lot of Protestants have a, have this kind of attenuated um, understanding of justification. Uh, there's a lot of hands here. Me there and um, I may not really be able to frame this question in a way that makes any sense at all, but I, I've been uh, kind of parked on First Corinthians three for about a week and a half. So it just may be my being parked on that to try to um, make sense of what you're saying tonight. But it, it talks about being a master builder, laying a foundation, building upon it. Um, and that no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about uh, building upon that with um, uh, gold, precious stones, uh, and silver, or wood, hay, and stubble. Mm -hmm. And if the day will um, be revealed. Um, so if, if we are, as Christians, and we really are building that on a foundation that is really out of the motivation of the law, Mm -hmm. Somebody else is building on that foundation out of the motivation uh, of the gospel. Does that imply that um, uh, what gets burned up and what doesn't get burned up? <laughs> <laughs> I think you get burnt up if you're if you're if you're if you're trying to simply live by the law. Um, I don't think that the point. Yeah, the, not, I don't think that's what Scripture mm -hmm. says though. He says your salvation is secure. Yeah. But the works will be burned up, right? Sure. He says you'll, be, you'll come through this through a flame, but you come through the nonetheless, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that I'm, that I'm fully under, grasping the question in that in in that in, in, in that case. I'll be I'll be I'll be I'll be happy to talk. To, I mean, like I said, I mean, um, uh, hopefully, you know, I'm, I'll probably uh, revise this paper again if I um, if I ever have to sort of go uh, give it again because you know clarity is something that I really strive for. But uh, but I've been trying to grasp something in this paper. It's also kind of a theological exercise for me. Like I said, this difference between law in this very specific theological sense and the fact that there is also and the Bible also uses a number of other words to um, convey. Something akin to the law. I mean, the, the commandment, command. I mean, all of these are also. And I, I've made. A, I've decided to make a very um, kind of rigorous, for the sake of clarity, um, uh, theological distinction between the law, as like I said, simply that which um, we find in ourselves when we lose our mooring in God. It's a certain, a certain way of being that drives us, compels us uh, in, in incessantly, that then civil law and then theological accusatory law simply magnify, but really, really sort of tap into that very dynamic. Uh, and something like the command where the lawgiver's nature is, is, is given, and the command, and the point is not to really keep the command, but to allow it to guide, to deliberate on it in such a way that we can uh, through it, even more effectively, descend into the neighbor and come and meet the neighbor. But, but something that directs us away from itself, it's not about the keeping of the law it's about, or the keeping of the command, but it's about serving the neighbor. Uh, and that's a, that's a kind of a richer reality. And, and more, 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 um, so uh, anyway, I'm not sure that that answers your question, but you know, like, like I said, I, I, I preface this with a bit of a disclaimer that you know, I'm trying to... Um, in a sense, separate the terms in such a way that I can grasp 
the two different realities, and I've labeled them by two different terms, which the Bible may be a little, um, uh, may, may treat them as, as more or less synonymous. Okay, I think this is, might be our last question. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, uh, I guess I have two questions. One, um, um, how do you think the Lutheran view sort of squares with the historic um, Anglican view on, on these subjects? And uh, I guess the second question is, I've seen, I can't remember who it is, but it's sort of a prominent Lutheran theologian these days say something to the effect of sanctification is getting used to your justification. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the idea being, I guess, that, that it is um, essentially without striving or without any uh, effort. Mm-hmm. What are your views on that? I mean, I, th- I think that's I think that's that's probably true. I mean, I, I don't want to sort of there's a there's a um, kind of a false way of articulating what sanctification is because some people sort of think that sanctification just has to be spontaneous, right? It sort of happens like you you know I've, I've, the, the reason the way I've and this is probably what Mark meant when he said that I'm kind of articulating it you know what he think, thinks is maybe something akin to the third use of the law is the fact that. Um, um, we are, we, you know, we are not simply just spontaneous, and the point is actually too deliberate, right? We have to sort of, you know, we can allow ourselves to to take time to figure out, to, to seriously ask ourselves, what does my quest, what does my neighbor need? But in that sense, insofar as God is for me and I don't have to be for myself, then sancti- then sanctification is getting used to your justification. I mean, it's uh, because, uh, and I think Mark said that last time that the problem with a lot of theories of sanctification is that they tend to actually formally replicate what is the movement of sin. Uh, the sinner is curved in on themselves, and then somehow there are, you know, people sort of present sanctification as, as exactly that, right? I have to work on myself. I have to sort of, you know, just make sure that, that I, you know, I, I dot my I's and cross my T's. And I don't think that, that, really, that that's really what sanctification is. Um, sanctification doesn't happen in a vacuum. The sinner exists in a vacuum. The sinner justifies himself, separates himself, immunizes himself or herself um, against the world. But sanctification, the question of sanctification, as far as I'm concerned, simply cannot be answered without um, really asking yourself, well, where am I? Who is my neighbor, and what do they need? That's what that's how sanctification is defined, and in the sense, I think that's how Christ displayed His holiness by coming into our flesh, by asking asking Himself, "What do the children of Adam need?" Um, and and in, and in that sense, I think uh, our our view of sanctification is exactly that: the living out of out of justification. Um, as far as your first question um, is concerned, I think uh, some of you might be able to answer it, um, or maybe we'll answer it next week when we have these sort of three theories, um, and then we can sort of talk about. I don't know enough about Anglican theology to be able to speak intelligently to the differences. Um, for all for all I know, you might say, well, this is my theology. You've articulated nothing different from what I believe. Or, or you might just say, oh, my gosh, this is just heresy. Um, so uh, um, so uh, I'll, I'll leave that to, to you. Um. Peter, thank you for being with us tonight. It was a stimulating and thoughtful lecture. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um.